Alan McGuckian, you are a Jesuit, you're one of three brothers, Michael McGuckian and Barry McGuckian. You're up here in Belfast in ministry here. Tell me about how you got here, first of all, because you, you were down south for quite some time, even though you are a northerner yourself. Well, I actually did first starts here in Belfast way back in the 70s, and at the end of uh, 1972 I went off to Dublin and joined the Jesuits. And uh, at that time there were no Jesuits in the north at all. So why did you pick them? Uh, there is a family history. Uh, I'm the third of three brothers who walked this particular road. And uh, I felt a very powerful sense that I was called to something. Uh, and uh, and I, because of my two brothers I knew the Jesuits. I knew young Jesuits. Uh, and I had always been impressed by them as individuals. Uh, they were terribly interesting, I found them desperately interesting, but also great fun. Uh, there used to be parties in our house that Jesuits would be at, and, and uh, uh, there was singing and storytelling. And uh, So anyway, when, when I felt strongly attracted to this way of this kind of life, the Jesuits were the first place I was going to look. Uh, uh, then it, I suppose it was over the first few years of formation that it, it became confirmed for me that uh, I wasn't just uh, lemming-like following others. Uh, I, I came to realise that this was the place for me to be. Because the Jesuits do do that in terms of formation. It is a long discernment process and the Jesuits are very good and have a long history of helping people discern and make good decisions. The first two years, the novitiate, that's what it is. It is a time of decision making uh, centred around the 30-day retreat, which again is all about um, meeting God inside yourself, meeting God inside the ways in which you're drawn this way and that way and which you're attracted and which you're repelled and so on. And uh, uh, it, that 30-day retreat, uh, in many ways then sets the tone for that first two years, during which you're invited to make a decision. And you're invited to make a, a serious decision. Like it's a, when, at, at the end of your novitiate, you commit yourself for life uh, from your point of view. On the understanding that you could be young at that time, but you have made a really radical commitment based on very serious thought. Then, over the next number of years, uh, before you're ordained or before you take your final vows, this, there's this ongoing process. I suppose a large part of Jesuit life is discerning God's will in the small things and great things every day, and obviously then the big things of your life. Uh, and... Uh, uh, there is always the possibility of, of, of finding God moving in new ways. But really from the very beginning there's a two year period when, when you're invited to listen to God very seriously in your own heart and, and make a choice. And, and uh, uh, I found that at the end of the two years in the Vesiat, I was ready to do that and happy to do that and I knew that this is what, this is what God wants for me. And also in the Jesuits there is then study that follows along with that. I mean you mentioned doing a primary degree but you also do philosophy and theology. Um, how did that fit in in terms of your own vocation and did that strengthen it? Was it challenging? The, uh, yes, uh, the, the philosophy was a wonderful time. Uh, the, the 
key to the philosophy uh, for me was Bernard Lonergan's understanding of how people know things and what it is to know. Uh, I, I, I was very well introduced to that by some excellent teachers in Milltown Park in Dublin and was quite fascinated. I was given a conviction that, that we really can know some things. After two years away from studies where, where I was a teacher and a, a prefect in Clongos and really you know, and getting involved in the lives of, of young people, I went back to theology and uh, I felt that I'd been given a, a great basis to study theology. I remember meeting an old schoolmate of mine who, who went off and studied science in the university and he was very much a science head and uh, uh, one day with a total straight face he said to me, you know, I suppose of all that religion you're studying, to be a bit like fairy tales. <laughs> Uh, with a total straight face, and he he wasn't even being he, he nasty. wasn't being, no he wasn't being nasty, and uh, <laughs> I didn't go into Lonergan's epistemology, but uh, I knew that we can know things, and ultimately we can know in so far as God gives it to us, we can know God and we can know the truth, and not to be held on to in any kind of an arrogant way. But it was a great basis for the study of theology and for holding on to your place and holding on to your stance as a Catholic Christian in the modern world. And I mean, that was some time ago. Nowadays, that's even more important because in many ways, that debate with the Dawkins and, and, and Hitchens and people of this world who get away with a lot of very shaky epistemology themselves mm -hmm. and yet there isn't really the training for many people to challenge that and to challenge it from a ground of, of um, as you would say, philosophical training mm -hmm. or understanding. So it is really important that maybe people and believers and Christians and anybody and even especially people thinking of, of maybe having a vocation, that they are trained in that way, that they also know that their faith can have a rational basis even if it goes beyond reason. Absolutely, it's no. There are horses for horses for courses, and and that particular thing isn't necessary for many people. I know many people who just have an in, inherent grasp of God's presence and God's presence to them in their lives and the reality of God, and and uh, and they don't have or don't need the the philosophical. Um, Kind of undercarriage, but I found it really important, and I know certainly as a faith community in the modern world, we do need to be able to stand in those kind of conversations with with many people who are who are carried away by Hawking and the Hitchings and Hitchings and, 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 and these people. So then you have your training behind you, but you've been in various ministries. Yes. So tell me about those and how they started. Both before I went to theology and then after I was ordained, uh, I spent a total of six years in secondary education, working in Clongos in a boarding school. Uh, a fascinating, challenging time. Uh, I, I, was, I was there looking after um, 15, 16-year-old boys, uh, and that is both stimulating and, and challenging and, uh, and hard work. But it was a great time in my life. You know, you were helping guide young fellas, whether it was on sports fields or classroom or 
helping them negotiate the difficult relationships that boys when they're 14, 15, 16 year old uh, often have with each other. Uh, I look back on that time with great fondness where you know you, you honed your skills as a communicator and a disciplinarian and an organiser and, and so on and uh, I look back on that time with great fondness. Then after that was over I uh, was sent to do two things. One was to do tertianship which is uh, a revisiting of the spirituality you know, at the end of the whole course uh, and I did that in India. An amazing experience of being in this huge continent of amazing uh, diversity of language, of culture, of religion, Religions. above all this kind of near, almost overwhelming diversity of religions in ways, you know, like shocking uh, as well as stimulating. Uh, and okay, so there was that experience, and I went. I was sent off to do some training in media. I trained as a radio producer in St. Louis, Missouri, in what was known as the Sacred Heart program there. And with that, I came home to Dublin and uh, was in the Jesuit Communication Centre, where we did all kinds of things: radio production, a bit of video production, media skills training. And then in 1999, the internet was relatively new at the time. We developed Sacred Space, the online prayer website uh, which started off very simply. It was a simple idea I had. I could see how using the mouse you could move from screen to screen and just felt that movement from screen to screen felt so like kind of a guided prayer experience that, that we had often led each other in. That led to us developing Sacred Space for Lent of 1999. Uh, I, Peter Scally, a scholastic from the British province at that time, was with me and together we developed this and it took off and it was a wonderful experience where, my goodness, we were getting emails from all across the world within days or weeks of this thing starting. Uh, people who were coming back to faith, people who found the anonymity of an online prayer community gave them, gave them permission to get back into relationship with God and maybe for all kinds of personal reasons, personal tragedy and other things, they had let it drift and it was just a wonderful affirmation that uh, that something great was, was happening and uh, that we were part of it. Uh, it was wonderful. A, a very Ignatian principle of finding God in all things because I think it was one of the first online, if not the first, prayer online prayer website. And part of that is the Ignatian insight that we don't have to shun the modern world or shun new things that people were also scared of, but in fact that you can use it and use it to the good because you talked about it being an online prayer community. I think it was the first. Certainly the, the papers and the media outlets all across the world were picking up on this amazing thing, praying at your computer. What an extraordinary thing that is. Of course we were happy to milk that for all it was worth and, and the media spread the message that this thing was available. Like very early on one was hearing about how particularly these new media could be used for all kinds of nefarious uh, anti-life, anti-inhuman ends and uh, somebody picked up 
I remember it was a very good article, I think, in The Economist or one of those. Having done Sacred Space, they were pointing out how there is something about that experience of sitting before a screen that actually sends a person into the insides of themselves. And there, they will find whatever's there. And, and as, as we as Christians know, there are all kinds of things inside ourselves. But God, above all, is inside ourselves. The, that sort of... Yeah, going into the interiority of yourself when well-guided. It's the Great Ignatian Principle, when it's well-guided. It's the good spirit that will have the upper hand. Because Ignatius knows that there's both a good spirit and a bad spirit. And, and the point of a guided meditation like Sacred Space is that it does help people get in touch with the Holy Spirit inside themselves. And it's based on the daily scripture readings. So from that regard, it lent itself very quickly to being ecumenical, picked up by other Christian denominations and is used by other Christian denominations. Within days I remember being so heartened I, I, I got a, an email from somebody saying uh, kind of anonymous or there was maybe a Christian name there I'm a Methodist in Belfast and I'm finding this just so very helpful. Actually there, there came a time in the early days when a youth evangelical movement based in Kansas City in the US they contacted us and said, we're loving this, is there any way we can uh, we can use these ideas? Could we even copy it? I think, I, I think they were astounded when we wrote back and said, come on over here and we'll give you everything we have. Anyway, again, that was a great affirmation that, that uh, Christians of all sorts, Protestants, Orthodox, and, and many people who maybe don't experience themselves to be Christians at all or who are not formally Christians, uh, have, have found in sacred space a real light for their lives. It's translated into numerous languages also, and I think the most recent one has been Danish, and that was done by a Lutheran lady. Yeah, and I, I was delighted to hear that. And, and I think there are other instances already of, of uh, people who are not Catholics really getting behind it and, and promoting it in their own churches. So you went from the virtual world in terms of that ecumenical work to eventually here to Belfast, where you're actually engaged in the real encounter. Tell me about the whole move to Belfast. I came back to Belfast then, I suppose it was about nine years ago now, and I have had all my life a great passion for the Irish language. Uh, there is a vibrant Irish language community here in Belfast, and so in my early days I began to work very quickly as a chaplain for some of the many Gaelskullina around the city. I, I worked along with a diocese priest, Father Dara McGillachahan, and we shared that work with the, uh, the Gaelskullina. I was also developing one-day retreats, t-shirt lay, we called them, with Irish speakers and so on, and I was carrying on at that time my uh, work as editor of Untimera, the Irish language uh, messenger of the Sacred Heart, and publishing in, in the Irish language. And then, since I've been here, I've been invited to branch out in, in various ways. The big central part of my work in Belfast now is the Living Church office, and the Living Church uh, reality within the diocese. That started, oh, it's about four years ago now, a small group of priests had been asked by the bishop to help with pastoral planning. The bishop wasn't long in office at the time, and I was invited to come on board with them as a facilitator for their group. And the notion of listening came front and centre very early on. Uh, we have to listen to the priests, otherwise a pastoral plan will have no traction or no value. 
So we did that. We had listenings for the priests, out of which we wrote up a, a short report. And that led us on to widen it out. We gathered the religious of the diocese and had listenings with them. And then, far bigger uh, operation was training 45 people to go out in groups of three into all the 88 parishes of the diocese and have evenings of listening to the people. And what were the questions and what were the listening to them about? It was a very simple, open, two questions. Number one, what would our church look like if we were really alive, uh, living the Catholic faith? And number two, then, how would we make that happen? And that really left people free, in many ways, to, to express all of their hopes and dreams, all of their frustrations and anger. Because there would have been child sexual abuse stuff going on at that time and no real way for people on the ground to feed back. So uh, this was uh, an opportunity that many people took up to say what they were feeling and thinking and uh, our listeners were extraordinary. They Record. just held that, recorded it, jotted it down, what people had said and it was all fed back in centrally where I took that and uh, distilled it down to a, sh a short report that became known as the Living Church Report which had a number of clear and universal themes. Greater need for lay participation, lay co-responsibility was, was the term that Pope Benedict had used at that time and, and we, we took his word. Open welcoming community, a need for greater openness and transparency and also we linked that, I, mean, I saw it being linked with us as communities being genuinely welcoming. There was both challenge and care for the clergy, there was widespread uh, conviction that we Catholics don't know our faith well enough, uh, even though those of us who are committed are not well versed in the theology or the scriptures. Then the universal concern about passing the faith on to the next generation. Was the women's issue, did that come up at all? The women's issue, yes, yes it did, yes. And kind of there was, it came up under two headings, there was lay participation and especially women there. The question of ordination came up. Uh, it wasn't a huge question. It got named in, in the report. It did, yeah, but it seemed to fit within those those two things, and uh, especially the full participation of people in the life of the church. Was the report published? Was it made public? It was. It was, oh yeah, along with a small group that was widened out now to involve priests and people who had been listeners, wrote a companion piece with some recommendations, what, what would come out of this, presented that to the bishop, had the whole thing published along with a letter from himself. So the thing was saying, there are, we, we need to move towards greater participation, we need to move towards open welcoming community, and so on. And concretely, we could get started on some of this right away. Yeah, did action come out of it? Because that's the key thing, isn't it? It did. The bishop asked me then to set up a small office. Which would, which would do a number of things. Number one, it would organise the spelling out of some of this in a plan, launching of that plan at a big diocesan gathering, a congress, and it would begin some of this work of training and facilitation within parishes uh, using the, the tool of a parish pastoral council for that work of growing co-responsibility between priests and people training in what we call the Ministry of Welcome. So there is, uh, from our office, there has been great deal of, of training at parish level of that co-responsibility, working together, and training and facilitation 
for Ministry of Welcome. Um, and that can be training people to be greeters, but more widely training people to look at our parish experience and ask the question, who's not welcome here? And why are they not welcome and what might we do? These things are all in their early days, but they are going on and that and, and changes changes are taking place. We had a, a, an amazing day in September 2013 in the Waterfront Hall over over two days, 1,500-1,600 young kids who had made their confirmation gathered. Then on the Saturday, that was Friday, on the Saturday, 1,500 people gathered again for the Congress proper and another group of about 1,600 gathered for a, a, a concert celebration of faith that night. And it really was, it wasn't just me, it really was, it felt like a moment of the spirit where people from all across the diocese gathered and were felt proud and proud in the best sense that they were part of something that was alive. So that term, the living church, has come to mean something very real for us. We speak about our call to reveal, not to create a living church. Church is not our creation, it's God that creates it, or has created it, but to reveal the living church. And uh, I feel that's what I'm a part of. Uh, I have an amazingly good, uh, committed staff within the office. And then people all across the diocese are, are stepping up and getting involved and volunteering both uh, at that kind of diocesan level, uh, diocesan pastoral council level, and at parish level. Uh, parish pastoral councils are being renewed or being created and, and built up. Uh, and that's going on. Because yeah, I was going to ask you that, because at one level you could say, well, that structure was there, there are parish councils, and yet I think it's fair to say, I, I know from the South, that there have been issues with the parish councils because they're okay as long as they don't cross the parish priest or, you know, an agenda comes in and, well, who's the boss here? And right. Because of that hierarchical model which has been ingrained. And yet what I think strikes me, and I'd like to know if this is the case, that because you listen to the priests as well, and they are part of the process, mm-hmm that there's a, re, a re-educating or a reworking together through that listening process so that we don't take for granted the old wineskins, that it's actually something new. That's Would that right. be right? Because co-responsibility <coughs> is, sounds good, but when somebody, you know, if a parish priest doesn't like something that their parish council is going to up with and say, no, That's not right. doing it, right. co-responsibility is out the window. Sure. And in our training, we are really up front that Catholic parishes live within canon law and canon law is there and has not been abrogated in the Diocese of Down Connor where the parish priest has the final say. But it's not a... Neither is it nor should it be a dictatorship of the parish priest nor a democratic free-for-all, let's take a vote and the majority wins. We're about something else in the church, which is back to the Ignatian thing. We are about the discernment of God's will. Now, if a priest and his people sit down and determinately and patiently seek God's will, then you're hoping that ideally we're not all the time going to be coming up against issues where they came up with something and I'm the priest and I don't like it. it, It's we who have been working on this all along. And, you know, so like, ideally, two things are not in conflict and, uh, and they don't have to be. Somebody once said that, that, you know, at a meeting, I think it was in Mouth, Somebody said, ah, but sure, there's no democracy, so there is no democracy in the Catholic Church, so how can we, how can we have this co-responsibility? And, and somebody said, well, it's true, yeah, certainly from the point of view of canon law, there's not democracy, but we have something better. We have the possibility of people, priests and people sitting down together to discern God's will, where at the end of the day, it's what, it's what God wants, not what the parish priest wants. 
and the parish priest uh, wants to be wanting that as well as everybody else. Uh, and with an understanding that through priests and people prayerfully considering these things together, something far better than his ideas are, are, are going to come up. And a lot of the time this works really, really well. Yeah, you, you're heartened by what you've seen. Is it a model that could possibly be rolled out in other dioceses? Uh, no, I mean, it, 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 this is not something we're making up in Down and Connor. This, this is the church at its best since the time of the apostles. It's, uh, what, what I think we are doing, uh, and, and, and no, to, to, to be fair, we have learned an awful lot from the other dioceses because an awful lot, in an awful lot of places this insight has been, been worked out for ages. The problems, the problems are always human, you know, like human being, people will start off, we all start off full of the joys, everybody's up for it, they're so enthusiastic, God's in his heaven, it's all going to be great. And then, in every human group, whether it's from among the people or the priest or somebody else, people hit a wall, you know, and we all do. We all know this. And what so often happens is that when we hit the wall, we give up and either just go into neutral and people say, ah, should we just go along with whatever was there, whatever the priest wants. Or, you know, like uh, the priest in many cases will throw up his hands because he says, this is, this is bedlam, you know. The real work is staying with it people staying with each other and uh, I would be hoping that here in Down and Connor and everywhere else we will learn learn the skills of supporting groups and this is groups of priests and people together and being patient with one another and when they hit the wall stopping you know like like that's the time when you want the time to, to pull back and stop and pray We've hit the wall here. Let's stop and pray and realise we're about something bigger than ourselves. And we'll come back to it in ten minutes or we'll come back to it next month. And those stratagems, they do work. And they do get people over the wall when they hit the wall. It's all very human. This is how it works. And it's all very necessary in the times where vocations are quite minimal and clustering of parishes is taking place. There's a sort of a scrambling to try and do it in a particular way and it can be quite painful for people. So to have a buy-in of a listening parish and a community is probably a great thing to have at a time like this. You know, to have a buy-in of, of a parish where, where people are listened to and where they listen uh, and where there's the patience uh, with one another. It's patience of the priest with his people, patience of the people with the priest and with one another. It's the only way, that's, that's the only way that you can be sure that uh, we do our part to make sure that the Spirit of God is in the community. And it'll never be perfect. In any, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect Jesuit community, there's no such thing as a perfect parish community, there's no such thing as a perfect family. But within all of our limitations we can find ways of holding one another together in a space that is based on faith and prayer. And when we do that, the living church is there and it has to be good. And out of that living church, I mean, your work has also spread again. You are doing cross-community work with, you're here in North Belfast, but you are working with parishes that are in Loyalist Heartland. We had a, a lovely thing recently where a group of Jesuits came to Belfast, myself, two lads from Britain and a Belgian, and we worked with local prayer guides, the Down and Connor prayer guides, delivering a week of guided prayer both in Sacred Heart Parish, here where, where I live in Belfast, and the Church of the Good Shepherd, which is in, in genuinely a loyalist heartland in Monkstown, mm -hmm. out in one of the northern suburbs. And it was a great credit to the folks from Monkstown. They came into the Sacred Heart on the Sunday night for, for the first gathering, which was a new thing for, for, for some of them. And then we had our daily meeting with guides in the two respective parish centres uh, in 
Good Shepherd for the Protestants and Sacred Heart for the Catholics. We gathered again on the Friday night in the Protestant church this time to gather the fruits of it and it was a wonderful thing. Both the, uh, the guides who had been involved and the participants really felt that it had been a time of the spirit and uh, certainly the, uh, the minister in Monkstown, Reverend Arlene Moore, Father Martin McGill from Sacred Heart and I are going to work uh, and bring this forward with the prayer guides who, who, are, who can play a fantastic role in this living church development and are and will play a fantastic role in it. When and you say prayer guide, are these people who are trained in spiritual direction? Or? They are trained in prayer guidance, which I suppose is sort of step one uh, of supporting other people in prayer. And it started in the Jesuit house in Belfast, and a number of people, Father Finbar Lynch, Brian Grogan, and others who were here 20 years ago, began to train people to be able to sit with someone who is praying on scripture regularly, listen to them, articulate, give them a space to articulate their experience, and then help with suggestions of another scripture that they might go on, arising out of the experience they have had. So it's, it's, it, I think it's rightly called prayer guidance rather than spiritual direction, which might be a more, a deeper re reality. But yes, that has was started 20 years ago and uh, over the years they have had new training and we all gathered on Friday night again in the Church of the Good Shepherd. Now, there are people who were so moved by this experience of praying with Scripture. They were, I think, particularly moved by the fact that we had done it, Catholic and Protestant together. It was a great credit to the people from the Church of the Good Shepherd. They came into the into Sacred Heart Parish. For some of them, uh, that was a, a simple matter. For others, it was the first time. And, uh, but they'd be inside a Catholic church. It was. There, there would, uh, certainly one man said that um, it was his first time. Uh, and he was uh, quite uh, nervous about mm. it. Now, by the end of the week, when we gathered again, uh, the same man was saying that it had been a fantastic experience and that he was so grateful for it. Uh, something great will, will, will come out of it. I know the, the Reverend Arlene Moore and Father Martin McGill from Sacred Heart and I will meet uh, in, in September when the summer's over and see how we can take this forward to come together and uh, a little course of training over quite a few weeks was delivered and out of that there has been a, a, a core group of, oh, I'm sure there are, there are as many as 20 people who would be actively ready and willing to to go into parishes and either offer a week where they will meet with a guide one daily or for example another way they do it is that during Lent they will meet at the beginning of Lent and meet weekly where they, the directees will have been praying with scripture each day. Regulate what it means for them. You know, and they come to understand their own experience just by putting it into words. The guide is able to listen to that and out of that to make some suggestions as to a suitable scripture for them to go to the next day. Many people who have done it as directees or guidees say that it just begins to open up the scriptures for them in a whole new way. It is amazing considering what they were and the troubles were at their height here. Um, I was a journalist in the BBC, you were covering sectarian killings regularly and it was uh, Protestants were killing Catholics, now, not all Protestants of course, but what we're seeing is that there was such a fear and tension between the communities and to have this 
people actually praying and working together is a very hopeful thing to be part of. It, it certainly is. And on the, on the Protestant side in this particular instance, there is just huge willingness and enthusiasm that we, that we take this forward. And just the beautiful thing about this is that it's, it's praying in Scripture. That is the arena in which Protestants are just so at home and, and indeed and have a lot to teach us and, and, and share with us, which makes just guided prayer kind of an obvious way to go and to grow together. And I, I have a lot of hopes for this. Now, one thing strikes me that you have the hopes, but you have been and you're a member of a religious order who could be moved. You've been in different places. Would you be moved again? How does that work for you? Do you find obedience difficult? Or is it, again, part of a discernment process that you're free and ready to go alone and on foot, as St Ignatius would say, always ready to hit the road? Over the years, I have I've been moved a fair few times. And heretofore, it has felt relatively easy. I was ready to be moved, dispose of me according to your will, as, uh, as uh, Ignatius's prayer goes. I've been here for nine or ten years. I'm involved in something that I absolutely love. It's the best experience of my life. If and when the call comes, it will not be easy. I have to admit that. If it was easy before, it won't be easy the next time. Or who knows? Who knows how it will be? It's just a given that we Jesuits are ready to go when, when we're asked. The provincial will always discuss it with you. You will be, insofar as possible, you will be kept abreast of it. But needs can emerge, and uh, you know, like things can happen very fast, and I might get the call. God is good.